Chapter 2. We are, compared to some weeks, moving at a much faster pace tonight. So, four whole verses. Four whole verses. Compared to a couple weeks ago when we did one and a half verse. Hebrews. So as we go into this, uh, let's remind ourselves the context, which is always what we're calling the first question. So if you remember, our goal here is not just to study Hebrews, but to study the way you study the Bible. And so I want to think about not just the answer to the questions that we're asking, but even thinking about the questions we ask when we study a book like Hebrews. So number one, big context. Who can venture out a real brief overview of what's going on? Why is there a book of Hebrews? Who wrote it or what kind of person wrote it and for what reason to what kind of people for what reason? We don't know for sure. Not sure who wrote it, but we do know the kind of the background it was written into. Persecution of the uh, Christians by the Jews. All right, so Jews are persecuting Christians. What kind of Christians? Jewish Christians. Jewish Christians. So it's Jews persecuting Jewish Christians. Now, why did we say that was particularly difficult when it comes to persecution? It's their own families. So this is persecution that happens in-house, in neighborhoods, on the same cul-de-sac. You've got people persecuting one another. And what are they trying to get these Jewish Christians to do? Go. So leave Christ, go back to Moses, is the imagery that constantly comes up in Hebrews. So our first blanks there, big context. Jewish Christians are being persecuted by non-Christian Jews to turn away from Christ and back to the law of Moses. So away from Christ and back to the law of Moses. That's the big context of the book. Now let's zone in on the, the little context. That's the, the paragraph we're in. You know, if you remember, we've said several times the chapter numbers, verse numbers, things like that. They're not original. So whoever wrote Hebrews would not have had chapter 2, verse 1. He would have just continued in his line of thought from one piece to the next. So what's the line of thought that's happening when we start in chapter 2, verse 1? Can you recall from last or really all of chapter 1, what's the general thrust of the argument? Do you remember? So the divinity of Jesus is, so what he leads with is he's the exact imprint of the nature of God, the radiance of his glory. But then he, he leads with that, but he's got this kind of juxtaposition sort of truth that, that goes with that. It seems kind of contradictory, but, but it's significant. He, well, he became better than the angels. He didn't used to be, but he is now. All right, remember, there's significance to how could, it, in any sense, Jesus have ever been lower than the angels? Because he was God. I mean, how, could, how could God be lower than the angels? He became human. He became a man. So in the incarnation, he became lower for a little while, lower than the angels. Now, what did he do that made him have a name greater than the name of the angels? So death and then resurrection. So now he's in a glorified state, crowned king of all creation, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And then he goes through this list of Old Testament quotations comparing things the Bible says about angels versus things the Bible says about God the Son. 
and we went through, there were seven of those last week. So the little context is the author has quoted several Old Testament passages demonstrating the superiority of the Son to angels. So Son versus angels. This is going to be very, very significant as we, I'm going to try my best not to write angles. Yeah. I think I got it. Is that right? Okay. Angel. Like angel. Gel. Angel. Okay. Angels. Angles. Angels. That doesn't help you at all. Okay. This is going to be the significant question for really much of the book of Hebrews. It's just this term will change as we go. This will eventually become Moses. But right now it's angels. So we're dealing, we're comparing the sun to angels. Now last week we looked at all those scriptures that compared the difference. Um, we're going to say something a little more precise here in this setting. So here's what I want to do, is I want to walk through the flow of thought that's happening as we get into chapter 2. So some of this already happened, some of this is about to happen. So number one, and we saw this back in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus has a better what than the angels? Better name. What's the better name specifically? We emphasized that the first week, so or second week, so you might not remember. It's the sun. The sun part is the better name. Um, what would we compare that to? For Jesus, he has a better name. What do the angels have? Messenger. Yeah, just, they're just messengers. That's all they are at most, just messengers. That's a name. Son, slave. You see the difference there? So Jesus has a better name than the angels. Now he's going to establish two points. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Eternal in this sense means what? Not created. Not created. Exactly. You went straight to it, Jeff. Not just that it lasts forever, because angels technically will do that. We will do that. But what's one thing that God has in regards to time that we don't? Yeah, so if you think about humans and angels, starting point, infinite forward. All right, but where would we put God on this? We're tempted to say infinite back, right? But really, there's just this box that all of time is in, and God is out here. He's that much bigger. Jesus is eternal in that sense. Well, where would the angels be? Right there. Right? So eternal versus finite. Is that fair? Can we go with that word? Next. So Jesus, the man, has inherited a superior name to the angels by his death and resurrection, where he sits at God's, you should know that one, God's right hand. Alright, so. Continue the comparison. The sun rules. What do the angels do? Worship. I'll take worship. That's not the word I was going for. Serve. I was going for serve. But honestly, worship worship's just as good. They're, they're almost the same idea anyway. Alright, then number four. Now this this is gonna be interesting. And let me show it to you in a few different places, and then we'll read it in Hebrew. So Hold your finger in Hebrews 2, but turn to Acts chapter 7. Anybody 
everybody know what's going on in Acts chapter 7? Stephen's sermon. That's where Stephen's preaching. He's going to die at the very end. Um, but before we get there, um, this is the best Old Testament commentary in the New Testament. Does that make sense? So we have a Holy Spirit-inspired teaching explaining bits of the Old Testament from the Holy Spirit during the New Testament. Does that make sense? Another way to think about this is when we read the Bible, sometimes we have opinions about things we would say are strong that the Bible doesn't actually directly mention. So abortion. Do we have a strong opinion on that? Mm-hmm. The Bible doesn't say anything about it, though. Murder. All right, so you're saying murder, therefore, applies to the situation with abortion. That's not all we do, though. Why else would we say abortion's wrong? We do need to have a thorough answer to this question, <laughs> culturally speaking. Why, what, why is it such a big deal that we murder babies? All right, so, I mean, not one, that's a good one. It's against the Ten Commandments. Well, we got way more, though. He's a child. Okay, so, like, there's an innocence. As it, or we're saying a child wouldn't be a big deal if it was an adult. But since it's a baby, it's a big deal. It's worse. Why do we say it's worse? Because babies are so innocent. They're just I know they're born in sin, but they're so much Okay, so the Bible has a very strong opinion on the weak and how you treat them. And think about pure and undefiled religion is that you do what? According to James 1.27. Widows and orphans. Right? Judgment, justice towards the oppressed, major theme of the prophets. So not only is it a breaking one of the Ten Commandments, it's clearly an application of how God deals with the weak, the powerless, the oppressed in Scripture. You don't mess with them. God, God destroys the guy who messes with them. Right? We can go... Another really big category that's not here, though. Image bearer. They are image bearers. Like, that's why murder is wrong. This is a human being made in the image of God. And so we're not just sinning against the child when we do an abortion. What are we doing? Sinning against God. We're sinning against God directly by having that. So though we could say the Bible doesn't directly say anything about abortion, um, it's got a lot of very solid statements that... Without question, no shadow, no variation, this is not okay, biblically speaking. Does that make sense? So we can be super dogmatic about something, even if the Bible doesn't say it directly, because of what the Bible does say. That's called systematic theology. When the Bible doesn't say it directly, but we put stuff together, we weave it together and create a system of belief, that's what systematic theology is. So, all right, changing the subject, but talking about systematic theology, the Jews did systematic theology long before the New Testament was written. The Jews read their Old Testament and put it together and thought about it in certain ways. I'm going to show you one way that is very interesting, and I just remembered I didn't pick the verse, and I've got 54 verses to pick from. Um, it's somewhere in the sermon. All right, there we go, verse 38. So let me give you the setting. (laughs) Acts chapter 7, um, we're going to read 38 in just a second. Stephen's preaching, of course, he's about to be stoned. 
And what we're going to see here real clearly is how the Jews, we're going to see it reinforced again in Hebrews. Paul does something similar in another place. Um, how the Jews understood the Old Testament, how Moses got it. So if you think of how did Moses get the Old Testament, what would your simple answer be? How did Moses specifically, how did Moses get the law? God spoke it to him. That's not exactly how the Jews would have answered that question. All right, so that's exactly what most of us would say when we read our Old Testament. Um, but there's a, a catch to how it happened that made them change their answer a little bit. And so look at verse 38. It says, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Well, who gave, who spoke the living oracles in verse 38? An angel. An angel did. But you think about it, a lot of times when God shows up in the Old Testament, it's not really in a direct form. What form is it? What do we call that thing? Well, it is a theophany, but biblically, the Bible doesn't use the word theophany. What do we see instead in the Old Testament? Angel of the Lord. All right, you, see, you hear that idea? The Old Testament then was given to man through an angel, not through God directly. Well, think about it. Theologically, we would say that from a New Testament perspective. We already said, if you remember a few weeks ago, we were talking about God, humanity versus divinity, how God cannot be seen. Do you remember that conversation? You can't see God. It's actually impossible. Moses didn't see God. No one's seen God. The only way God could be seen would be for God to be something finite. He, he's infinite. You can't see infinity. Uh, you can only see... So God can only show himself to us in manifestations. So in the Old Testament, when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock and God walks by, that's not really God. It's a manifestation of God. Or maybe we could just like the Jews said, say, that was an angel. You hear how they're doing that theology? This is how they do it. You'll see it again in Hebrews. So turn to Hebrews chapter 2. Now let's actually read the verses. It's only taken us you know, 20 minutes to start. So, here we go. Hebrews 2. Follow what he says. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Now, much closer attention to what we have heard is in contrast to what? What they heard. So this is the we heard, and this is the they heard. Y'all follow what I'm saying? Another way to say this, what specifically did they hear? What do we call this thing? Bigger than the law. Law would be part of it, but just bigger than that. What, what would we say? Old Testament. Old Covenant. And then we heard... Oh, is it on there? Yeah, sorry. So we heard the... New Covenant. The New Testament. All right, so so we need to pay much closer attention to what? This one. Okay? Much closer attention to this one. For since the message declared by angels proved reliable... Which message? This one, it proved what? It was good. Hebrews is not saying this is bad. This was good. Moses is good. Ten Commandments, that's good. This proved very 
reliable, and what does he mean by reliable? He goes on, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. So in other words, the Deuteronomic principle was that you obey God, you get blessed. You disobey God, you get cursed. Do the law, things go well. Don't do the law, things go poorly. If we hone in on the people receiving this message at Mount Sinai, how did things go for them? Poorly, because what did they do? Disobey. So while Moses is up on the mountain getting this, they are literally down at the bottom making golden calf and calling it Yahweh and worshiping it. Right? It jumped out of the fire. It was an accident. You know Moses and Aaron had a talk about that later. You know that happened, right? Like, dude, really? <laughs> Why is there a cast over there? Um, <laughs> I don't even remember what I was saying. I'm sure it was significant. Um, okay, so in the Old Covenant, what he's saying proved reliable was when they obeyed, there was legitimate blessing. They got the land. David inherited the throne. Solomon expanded the empire. When they disobeyed, generations perished in the wilderness. Nations enslaved them. Assyria destroyed them. Babylon captured them. And in Persia, if they obeyed again, let them come home. We see a consistent pattern. God did this in the Old Testament. It was reliable. You disobey this, you burn. You obey this, God blesses you. It proved reliable. That happened over and over and over again. And so he's saying... Well, this message was good, and it proved reliable. We tried to pay attention to it. And in the New Testament, the Pharisees in particular, how well did they pay attention to this message? Well, technically, and that's not got too deep, but hypothetically, a Pharisee is doing what with the old message? Well, I'm not getting into the wrong. They did some big job. They, they love it. They, they paid super close attention to it. Too close, perhaps, but super close attention. So what's the author of Hebrews say? All right. How much more if this one proved reliable and it came from angels? What should we do with this one if it came from the sun? You see what he's doing? You see what he's doing intellectually? So where, where are we at in the blank? So the angels declared the message of the old covenant, but Jesus, the God-man, declared the New Testament. So that's the comparison. So for since the message declared to angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Do you understand the thrust of the question? How, how will we escape? Well, think about it. If they disobeyed this one, what happened? Well, they died. God poured out his wrath on the nation. In a lot of ways. But that was just a message from angels. The question is, now the sun has shown up. Jesus told a parable exactly this way. Do you remember? That he had this vineyard. And uh, the vineyard was set in charge with some stewards. And the owner of the vineyard left. And he sent these different people to go collect the, uh, the, the harvest, the income from the, the uh, vineyard. And what did they do to the first guy that they, he sent? Do you remember this parable? Beat him up. They beat him up. And they, he sent another one. And he goes to collect the, the money, and the stewards beat him up. And eventually, he says, he sent his son. Because surely they will respect the son. Of course, what do they do to him? Kill him. That's a 
precursor to the cross. And then what's it say? What's he going to do to that vineyard? He's going to kill them and then give it to someone else. What's he saying? You disobey this one, you die. You disobey this one. Now, how can it be worse than dying, right? But it can be. What's, this is God's wrath poured out. This is not a pretty picture, biblically. So, the greater the salvation, the greater the consequence for missing it. See what he's doing? So how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? All right, so number six. There's the full thought. Therefore... The New Testament must be as much greater than the Old Testament as Jesus is greater than the angels. Do you see the scale? So angels, very great. Very great message. Proved reliable. The son, however, he's not just a little bit better than the angels. How much better than the angels is the son? Infinitely greater. So how much greater is his message? infinitely greater. Now he's going to transition. We're not going there tonight, but the next transition is, therefore, which covenant is going to produce better results? The new. The new, right? The New Testament, I'm sorry, the Old Covenant consistently produces disobedience. So he's going to argue that you have to have the New Testament to consistently produce fruit. So is it you know, correct then to say that a genuine believer in Christ is going to have genuine fruit in their life. It ought to be a guarantee. And if it's not there, uh, we see this consistently in the New Testament. If it's not there, there's no fruit. What do we assume? Not saved. Because if you're saved, this covenant works. This blood cleans. I tried washing my garments in the blood of the lamb and it just didn't come out clean. I would say, you used the wrong blood. <laughs> like, the blood works every time. That's why it's the blood. So you, you use the wrong stuff. Because if you use the right stuff, your garments would be what? White. Perfectly white. Absolutely white. Therefore, there's an absolute assurance that this covenant produces genuine results. Now, he's going to use that forward for the next ten chapters to prove why they shouldn't go back. Now, I want to look at... Uh, uh, we'll do the application in a minute. Uh, let's hit verse 4 first. There's some good application to that we'll get to. All right, verse 4, or end of verse 3. It says, it was declared at first by the Lord. Now, what was declared at first by the Lord? This, who's the Lord? In the New Testament, when we see the word the Lord, who are we talking about? Jesus. That's Jesus. In the Old Testament, it's Yahweh. In the New Testament, unless it's obviously not, this is their term for Jesus. They will say God, the Lord, and the Spirit. That's just their Trinitarian designations. The Lord equals Jesus. So in the beginning, um, it was at first declared by Jesus. So what thing are we talking about that was declared? Uh, not, not this law. He's talking about the new covenant, the new message. We could call it the gospel of the kingdom. So he declared it 
when he was here. So the Gospels consistently say when they summarize the message of Jesus, you remember what it is? We talk about it all the time in Matthew's Gospel. What's the summary message of the, 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 the teaching of Jesus? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is also called many times the gospel of the kingdom, the good news. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preached this when he was here. And then it says it was attested to us by those who heard. Now we can make a few assumptions here. It was attested to us by those who heard. Two different groups of people. Who's the us in that verse? That's not the us. That's the next bit. It was attested to us by those who heard. Who are those who heard? See what I'm saying? Those are the original. So the original. So the, the apostles, the early, the first converts, Peter, James, and John, the 120 that followed him, so the people fed in the 5,000, those guys, those heard. Those people heard it, and they attested to us. Well, who does us include? But it includes us too, but it also includes the guy who wrote the book. Right? So the guy who wrote the book's not an original. So that still makes Paul and Luke both candidates and Apollo. So all three of those guys qualify here. But whoever's writing this, it's those who heard that told him. So he's got three stages. So Jesus said it himself, and then those people who heard it started telling people. And now this guy who's got the book has received that message, and therefore he's giving it. Yeah, follow? But how do you know the message is reliable? This is where we're going. Verse 4. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So God bore witness to what? truth of the message Jesus is preaching. So God bears witness. Well, we see this consistently in the book of Acts. What happens in the early church in the first few pages? What are Peter, James, and John doing in the temple? They preach the gospel, obviously, on the day of Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit comes down. They're preaching the gospel in tongues, and then what happens to the people listening? They get saved. They respond to this. God bears witness. People get saved. Few days later, they walk into the temple. There's a lame guy, and what's Peter do? Heals him. More people get saved. Consistent pattern, bearing witness to the fact that this message is true. Now, why are these miracles happening? Beyond the fact that there's a need, I mean, someone's sick, God's healing them in His goodness. But there's a bigger thing that's happening in all of those miracles. Why is God doing it? It's the sign, exactly. It's showing his power, this message, it's absolutely true. So first blank there, God bore witness to the truth of the message of Jesus by apostolic miracles. Now the reason I'm throwing the word apostolic there is I want you to see that they were categorically distinct. And we say this all the time, but just by way of reminder, um, God granted them authority. Whereas we would ask God to heal we, we certainly could ask him. He certainly does. I've seen crazy things happen. Um, but that's not how the apostles did it. When uh, Peter's talking to the lame beggar, does he say, well, man, let me pray for you, and hopefully you'll be healed. Now, what's he do? 
I'll give you what I do have. I don't have gold and silver. I can't give you that, but I'll give you what I do have. Get up. So how, how would you describe that hill? <laughs> it's confident, right? It's, get up, get up and walk. it's spontaneous. It's immediate. It's, it's not this faith-based sort of thing we think about in televangelism. It's just get up and walk because he'd been granted the authority to do that. We see the same thing with Paul. Peter both have this sort of, they go places and people even accidentally get healed at times because there's power in these guys. Why do they have this power? What's so? What's a big deal about it? That's God bearing witness. That's what this text is saying. So God bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Um, another, I forgot. I had another example. You know what I'm talking about, though. So Paul, Peter, Paul made the guy blind when he started his ministry. He should, oh, okay, I remember. The, the seven sons of Sceva who tried to cast out the demon and the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. You remember how the demons responded to that guy? I don't know you. Like, I was like, well, we know Jesus. It's like, then we've heard of Paul. I don't know who you are. And then they all get beat and stripped naked and sent out um, wounded. Um, point being, even the demons knew who Paul was. Unique category. That category existed because God was bearing witness. Now, can you imagine why that category would cease? Why would we not need the position of apostle now? Because it seemed kind of convenient then. It'd be nice if I could just prove the gospel was real by, hey, whoever's sick, come up, I'll, I'll fix it right now, and then you'll know Jesus is true. That would be convenient, but it's... Ooh, ooh, we'll get there. You skipped a point. <laughs> that, that one's coming. That one's coming. All right, what did you say, Joanne? It's not going to go? We have the Bible. So what is the Bible with regard to this conversation? What word? Of God, but where did it come from? The apostles. This is the apostolic witness. It is the canon of the New Testament. Canon. The New Testament came from the apostles. We have it now. And so rather than needing the apostles to bear witness to the canon, their message itself does the witnessing. The, the apostolic power is still present, but it's here. It's in the book. And just like Emily said, the best way we see that is uh, it transforms lives daily all over the planet. And so the next blank is the Bible bears its own witness now. And, of course, I looked at Hebrews 4.12. Y'all know that one? It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This is the word doing that. The word literally has power to transform people. And that's still how God bears witness to that message. So we're going to talk about Sunday. It's interesting how these lined up, comparing the Old and New Testament in Corinthians. And the glory to Moses, when he received the, the Ten Commandments and saw the glory of God, what happened to his face? Do you remember? Yeah, it was glowing. And so they saw the glory of God reflecting off of Moses' face. And then Moses would cover his face with a veil, 
um, because there was a specific thing he was trying to hide from the people. Do you know what it was? That's actually not what he was trying to hide. He was trying to hide that the glory was fading. It's like, wow, look at how much glory there is. Y'all see that? Put this hood on, and then it's fading away. Everybody can see it. Then he goes back, hang out with the Lord. It's glowing again. Look at me. You know? <laughs> and then it starts to fade, so he puts the, puts the mask back on. Then, then Paul says that's a metaphor. When you, when you read the Old Covenant, the veil, is the, the veil is on. You can't see it. You have to turn to the Lord, therefore the New Covenant, and you behold the glory of the Lord. It's the, the Word itself directly bears witness on its own. Word does this. I mean, how many people get saved because they found a Bible somewhere? I mean, that's why the Gideons had such a big emphasis on getting the Bible in these hotel rooms. How many people you know, heard the gospel a bunch of times? They got in some place had access to the scriptures and boom, because the power was in the Word. It's what does the witnessing. It bears the final witness. Okay, so let's make good application of this. There's a few things we could pull out more than what I'm looking at here, but I want to emphasize these. So I'm really looking at verse um, 2 here. Wait, no, 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 verse 3. So how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? My question would be, escape what? Punishment. Punishment? That's that's correct, but what what are we talking about? God's wrath. God's wrath. So we can say that so nonchalantly. You know, it's, it's God's wrath. You know, but but if you think about it, like it's terrifying. Eternal separation from God. And so a lot of people go there, eternal separation. I mean, I grew up with that lingo. And it, I mean, there is a verse that, that gives that statement credence. So it's not like it's wrong, but it does leave out some significance. So we think about the idea of hell as God's up here, and we get to hang out with him in heaven. His glory radiating, and then there's some kind of, I don't know, we'll just say there's a pit, a lake of fire. There's this other place where when you're in hell you hang out, and there's no God. Um, And that's not at all what we mean when we say separated from God. Um, Separated from God is separated from God in his goodness. Separated from God in his love. Separated from God in his mercy, from his beauty, his glory. There's not no God down here. God is very present in hell. Um, and that's the one thing about hell that's going to be so bad, is his presence. His presence in what way? Wrath. God's wrath is going to be there. You ever had someone mad at you? Have you ever had someone mad at you when you deserved it? Mm-hmm. How's that? I mean, it's bad enough if you don't deserve it. What if, it, like, legitimately, you earned it? They're mad at you, and uh, you want them to forgive you, but you have the sense of knowing that you, you earned every bit of this wrath and fury that's coming your way. How does that moment feel? It's horrible. That's very horrible. How much worse when it's the God of the universe? <laughs> I See what I'm saying? I don't think there's a comparison. There's not. This scared Jesus so bad that he sweated blood thinking about it. The God incarnate, scared of God's own wrath. 
I think it's a significant point here because we want to think about the New Testament clearly or exclusively in nice, positive terms. And I, I get this question at the Home of Grace all the time. Why is God so wrathful in the Old Testament and so loving in the New Testament? And my response is you've, you've read it wrong. Uh, there's, technically speaking, way more wrath in the New Testament than there is in the Old. I mean, have you read the book of Revelation? Almost all the Home of Grace guys have. I don't know what it is about coming to the Home of Grace. They're almost all convinced that the first book you read is the book of Revelation. I mean, maybe most Christians get saved and they go read that book. I don't know. But it's like, you realize, like, you just read eight chapters of fury. God kills everyone on the planet, like, four times. <laughs> you know, it just keeps coming and coming and coming. There are consequences, and that's why we call it salvation. Like, we're being saved from something terrible. That's why it's salvation. So how much, how shall we escape if we neglect this great salvation? So there are consequences for neglecting the message of the New Testament. So it's almost like when people say that, what they're really trying to say is we're living in this current window of time where we have the open, the opportunity. You have an opportunity to repent now. But when you say the Bible, uh, you know, Revelation, yeah. That window's closed at that point. Yes, that window's closed. Exactly. That's why we get the lingo. We'll see it in 2 Corinthians coming up real soon. Yeah, today is the day of salvation. It's now. This is your time. Now, Jesus said, repent. The kingdom of heaven is nigh. Like, the time will run out. You can repent right now. You won't get to in the end. But you can now. That's why repentance is a key word in the New Testament. Or next, the message of the New Testament includes... Salvation from an impending doom. It's another way to say that. Includes salvation from an impending doom. And number three, the message of the New Testament still changes lives to this day. So that's what we're getting at. It bears witness. So many people are different people because of the work of the gospel that they have read in the scriptures. It's 20 after, something's wrong. Someone ask a question. <laughs> I didn't prepare enough material to it. But I've always thought that even though we don't have the miracles of somebody being raised from the dead, someone uh, being cured of horrible disease or whatever, to me it's 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 a miracle when someone gets converted. Someone Absolutely. goes back on their old life, goes away from it, becomes a, a child of God. Really, about the most powerful witness in the world today is a changed life. Yeah. And you see someone who you don't even recognize anymore because of what Christ did in them. And, and how much more beautiful of an image that I used to be someone else. And now I'm a child of the king. Uh, changed, transformed from the inside, forgiven. You know, things change us. And the gospel is one of those things that always produces change. And it's proof. It's, this isn't self-help. This is consistently for two millennia in every culture on this planet, the gospel has changed lives. And what other thing on the planet can make that claim? The answer's nothing. So. I don't know who dresses try to make that claim. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> wow. Okay. 
Well, any questions on Hebrews? We good? It feels wrong to let out nine minutes early. I'm just going to drag it out. I'm just kidding. Come on, Jim. Ask a question. <laughs> no, he's going to Tim ask a question. It'll be another 30, 30 40 minutes. So we'll, we'll call it here. All right. Well, let me uh, pray for us, and we'll be dismissed. God, we thank you for tonight. We uh, thank you for this opportunity to read the word together. Pray that you would bless our understanding of it. Help us to think about the significance of the power of the new covenant and how much better the salvation Jesus provides compared to obedience to the law being a basis of our righteousness. God, I thank you for this grace you've given us. I pray that we would not neglect this great salvation, but that we would walk faithfully in it and be transformed by it and faithfully share it where we go. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right.